So I was not here uh, last week for episode 22. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, luckily, Alex will have a recap for you. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, I do recall it was one of the more like stark episodes. Everything was failing. Nothing was going right. Zero Two just starts getting stigmata all over her body. Uh-huh. Pretty brutal. And last week's guest was one of our more critical guests. Was there any change of tone? Yeah, you'll you'll get to hear it. You'll <laughs> you give me your take on whether she's welcome back next season on our podcast. I have enjoyed the, the previous episodes. So, uh, Ahsoka Tetris, Alex. <laughs> There's one guest we've had on the show, a uh, reoccurring guest, and I have been absent every single time. <laughs> and it is absolutely not personal. It's just you're avoiding weird. Ah, you know, it's a cosmic avoidance, though. It's just the stars align each time she is our guest that, you know, something requires Brian's attention. You know, when in high school and I was having my whole crisis of faith because I was raised Catholic and every person raised Catholic has to do that. Hey, twinsies. (laughs) Uh, I read this book called The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. His whole deal was that if you put stuff out in the universe, the heart of the universe will conspire in your favor. Hmm. And this is a very long way of saying that you're putting the juju out there to avoid (laughs) this group interview. Dang it. Somewhere in your heart. Well, I need some some alchemy. (laughs) Brian has one of those dream boards up on his wall. And it's just like (laughs) Tanya's face with a cross over it. And then underneath it, in big, bold letters, the secret circled three times. (laughs) So welcome, everyone, to Pen Pen Pals. This is episode 23, the penultimate episode of Darling in the Franks. I'm Alex. And this is Brian. I'm back. Hey, and this is Ben. Uh, And we have a new guest, uh, but again, not someone who's new to talking about Darling in Franks. Please welcome Alex from the YouTube channel Socratetris. It's me, Socratetris. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I immediately have a lot of controversial news that I need to share about the show. Ready? Okay. We're going to go sure. in the line Stop item the order. Breaking news. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> this past week, I went to a mall in Florida with real humans, where real humans gather. Uh-oh. And I accidentally parked next to a car that was wrapped in a bunch of anime decals and i kid you not at least 90 percent of them were a2 from darling in the franks pretty much entirely nude okay (laughs) just like letting it all hang out there i I met someone who was dedicated to their waifu so that's that's number one okay i and i have decided that in my heart Anyone who likes the show is the guy who drives that car. <laughs> so wait, are we talking about just like the sticker decals? Or are we talking about those wraps that we're cost, talking like, about thousands? Full door, both sides, back and front, all A2. You know, that and could all, uh... all that kind of nude where it's just they they put that they had the long hair cover in just the right places. Oh, right, right. It right, was right over the top i'm lost who's a2 if then i'm am i saying oh two zero two zero two. Oh yes i was, th- okay. I was thinking eight why was i thinking i was eight? thinking a1 the studio 
but I got you. I was looking up a lot of stuff because I have this. My second line item is a conspiracy theory about studio <laughs> Twitter. Oh. Um, and that's definitely something I, I, I kept saying A2, zero two. This shows mm -hmm. exactly how much research I did for this episode because <laughs> I thought I was going to rewatch the show and I had every intention of rewatching the show before mm -hmm. coming on here. But mm -hmm. instead, I started watching Eureka 7 again because of Theta talking about it when he came on to the right. And that's my favorite anime ever. Really? So I didn't make it to rewatching Darling in the mm. Franks. Uh, but episode one of Eureka 7, I saw one of Studio Trigger's hallmark designs, mm. their little star-shaped cross that they put in every single one of their shows as sort of mm. like an action shining animation symbol. Mm -hmm. And of course, then I remembered Theta talking about how the Golden Bow, a book, was referenced in both of the shows. Mm -hmm. Eureka 7 is made by Studio Bones. We know mm -hmm. this because we're all perfectly educated fans who never get the name of a character wrong, ever. <laughs> <laughs> mm -mm. Not once. And then I remembered that Studio Bones also made an anime about horny teenagers piloting super robots through the power of their libidos no called star driver kagayaki no takto and yeah it is as crazy as darling in the franks gets it's very horny but it's horny for Fujoshi. It is Bishonen horny. It is ah. fancy marching band, way over the top, super galactic outfits, pretty boys all obsessing over the normal girls. It's it's that kind of, mm, that feeling, you know? It's an entirely different kind of horny, but it's still very horny. It looks like Escaflone in the Franks. <laughs> it's it's so crazy. I watched Star Driver so intently when it came out, thinking it was like the next biggest thing ever, that even in my room, I was shouting the main character's catchphrase when watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is? Galactic Bishonen! Tao Ban! <laughs> That's awesome. Has anyone ever heard of an anime called Diamond Dollar? Prince versus Penguin Empire? No. I think I know the Japanese title. <laughs> okay. Or maybe I'm thinking of Mawaru Penguin Drum. No, this is another like mech that's powered by like penguins. Erotic energy. Damn it. People need to leave the Orgone energy alone. <laughs> that's that stuff is too powerful. Get it out of my house. Leave it in your body. <laughs> I'm Catholic. I was trained to be ashamed of these things. Yeah, yeah shame yeah. is the real power. I do kind of want to see mechs driven by shame. That would be. Uh... Uh, that's just Evangelion. That's <laughs> that, that's where we started. <laughs> Evangelion. That's where we started, everyone. We started at shame. <laughs> now get in the mech and think about your mom. Oh. Get in the mech. Get in the mech. Feel shame about your life. Then kill angels and God. Do it. Oh my God. I love it. I have never heard it put that way. <laughs> uh, okay. Does anybody have any news, any anime news, any <laughs> announcements they want to make that they have to voice to the world? Penguins have a front tail that looks like a penis. And that was part of the anime Diamond Dollar. 
that, I that's love my, penguin facts. That's my I, news. I hate that penguin fact. <laughs> <laughs> good penguin fact. Oh, last line item, just for everyone <laughs> listening to the podcast, an assignment for everyone within oh, no. the sound of my voice. Homework. Okay. I want to know exactly who are the exclusive high level mm. citizens of the internet who are connected to this esteemed podcast. And the only way that I can do that for us to be united is if everyone listening goes to my YouTube channel, Socratetris, and chooses a video to comment below it with the secret passphrase, pen pineapple pen pen pals. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will know, we will know, we will have a connection that's pen pineapple pen pen pals. Mm -hmm. pen That's pineapple, all you have to remember. Pen, pen, pals. <laughs> Every everyone everyone together now. Pen pineapple pen pen, 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 pals. pen pen pals. There we go. Thank you. I love it. Thank you very much. Wait, sorry, just really quick, uh, and we can cut this out if we cut out Brian's thing. But like, I googled the penguin front tail, yeah, and the only thing that comes up is this anime. Like, I don't think this is a real thing. <laughs> I think this is just big in this anime. And Are you anime saying they lied to somebody? <laughs> Diamond Dollar about, told the false truth about biology, about penguins. That's sacred. I oh either it isn't true or just like this anime really owns this fact, or or maybe my my Google searches have gotten oh so God. perverted by anime that <laughs> the uh, the images that come up are striking. <laughs> mm, don't oh like my it. God. <laughs> don't want it, don't like it. All right, I'm gonna have to clear my history later. Yeah, can't let people find your penguin stash. <laughs> Last time on River Swimming 2, back in the water. Squad 13 started farming, but a century of magma energy usage left the soil as barren as the adults who just abandoned the planet. Streletia Apis departed the Earth along with a Clax Armada, becoming the first Earthlings to venture beyond the moon's orbit. Zero Two solidified her role as a sacrificial savior, sprouting stigmatic, sanguine slices all over her skin. Hero watched over her body as the chasm between her, their consciousnesses continued to grow. Ichigo tried everything but begging and force-feeding to keep the Nines alive, and Nana found renewed purpose comforting wounded pilots. Zorome, Miku, Ikuno, and Futoshi sat under the stars and talked about reasons to live after Hiro made his decision to go to space. The whole squad, minus Kokoro and Mitsuru, plus the three remaining nines, decided to accompany Hiro on his trip to the stars. How will Kokoro and Mitsuru fare on Earth? How will the squad get Hiro back to Zero Two? What's it like to be a giant mech space goddess? Let's find out. All right, three, two, one, play. All right, so I need uh, someone to jog my memory. How is Squad 13 cooperating with the Klaxosaurs now? The Klaxosaurs left a ship, which apparently can be boarded by humans, and that's how they're getting up into space. Yeah, okay, I do remember that. Mothership Klaxosaur. Such a funny idea to me, just because, like, Klaxosaurs were like beasts, right? But now they're a space fleet. So it's like, is the ship alive? But, but, but long ago, okay, hear me out, 65 okay. million years ago, they were people like you and I yeah. with advanced technology. They made all those ships. You, you think okay. they would have used these ships to fight the, the humans, though? Human schmuman. You know, it's another thing I never fully figured out. 
Mm. Are the Franks themselves like people? They're plaxosaurs, yeah. Yeah. I mean, didn't Franks just like copy all their shit? <laughs> I will never be able to hear the word sapien seriously. I, I would have preferred a different translation. What do they say in Japanese? Well, it's Kyoryu is, was the Klaxosaurus, but I don't know what the Klaxosapien is. Ryujin. Kyoujin. The dragon people. That's cool. Dragon people sounds cool. Dragon people's That's way cool. That was interesting. Nine Alpha got to see what it means to be chummy. They did not show at all what happened to the triplets. I think they're dead. Off-screen death doesn't count as death. I don't think they were clones of Zero Two. Uh, I think they were something specially designed to supplement the Nines. Oh, that looks like it's going to be painful. I love it, though. Because doesn't it look like a brain? Yeah. Because there's like a panel in front of it that still looks like the headdress. Love the picture book's color choices. So much purple. Picture you think it was pro-verm. Well, she's in a negative place right now, right? Mm -hmm. And purple is the color of corruption. Of the unknown and unnatural. Oh, see, there's that purple again. Oh, wow, his horns are, like, fully grown now. Full Klaxo Sapien go. They're in Daisuke. Anime name shouting is great and all. Yeah. You gotta get that anime cringe in there, too. So, this is our, well, the team's last battle. Uh, Maybe not. Zero Two and Heroes Last Battle, but uh, everybody's going into space. Kokoro is narrating because, you know, you got to have somebody narrating who's saying goodbye, I guess. That's kind of cool. Uh, and Mitsuru staying too, even though Kokoro says, like, you could have maybe found another partner and piloted again and <laughs> helped them out. But Mitsuru wants to stay. Like, it's not about obligation. So the theme is about belonging. We're all looking for somewhere to belong what Kokoro's thing was at the end. Mm. This is Mitsuru's perspective, right? He belongs with Kokoro. Yeah. It's hard to exactly figure out where the focus of the episode was on, like on which character dynamic, mm -hmm. just because the episode did move around a lot. It had to show the space fighting, but it also had to show what was happening back on Earth. There was a lot of mental connection between Hiro and Zero Two, but not a lot of like verbal dynamic. Mm -hmm. Even though they weren't in the same place, they were kind of on the same page. And once Hiro was in the giant robot, there's no like conflict. There's no like, Hiro, you shouldn't be here. I was doing this on my own. It was like, no, we're in it. We're together now. Well, it is. Episode 23, we yeah. do have to move things along, you know? Yeah. And that's actually something I want to point out about uh, hmm. this episode and about the series as a whole. A lot of the issue that a lot of people had with this final sequence, with moving into space, the big transformation, and then the sort of into the unknown, like concluding moment of the show, a lot of the criticism I had myself and uh, heard other people voice was that the speed the acceleration of introducing the space element and then going all the way to this end happened too fast hmm. and i now having reflected on the series and it being it much later and knowing that this show is pulling 
from a lot of influence from Gurren Lagan back in the Gainax days to Ereka 7, from Studio Bones, mm-hmm. and of course, all going back to super mecha uh, aesthetic established by Evangelion. Lots of shows have this escalation, but a lot of those early shows had like the 50 to 54 episode runtime to get that escalation. Ereka 7 in particular, uh, around the end, also has this sort of crossing the threshold moment to like find the final step of how this problem is solved, how this distance between a non-human person and a human person can come together. And to Eureka 7's benefit, the extra episodes, they were able to go past this moment, but this is the culminating moment of Darling in the Franks. There's no Mm. time to show us what's on the other side or what happens next. Mm -hmm. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see Zero Two and Heroes peace with each other as earned in this moment? Because they are on board, they're on the same page once Hero makes it to the giant wedding robot. Mm -hmm. The robot transforms into Zero Two because She's a human, but also a, a Klaxosaur sapien. And an anglerfish. <laughs> and it's like perhaps a little bit too metaphorical for the average huh. viewer, viewer to pick up on, especially on a first watching, and especially not if they're doing what you guys have been doing and really analyzing every episode step by step to see that narrative, mm-hmm. that metaphorical, complete picture. But mm-hmm. do you guys think that that sympathetic union of Hero and Zero Two was earned, or did it like rush right before the finish line? Who wants to go first? Sorry. <laughs> I think it's totally earned. Uh, I mean, they've just both gone through these death and rebirth cycles for each other. They've both gone through the gates. They've both enacted this like one focal point for their life. And like, yeah, absolutely. I think it earns it. Personally, you know, this is my first time watching it, but I felt like the Kokoro Mitsuru, like we kind of got like a new thing there. Like there was this mm-hmm. like challenge in the relationship. And to me, that one, I was like, oh, like that felt more impactful. And then the Hero Zero mm-hmm. Two thing, it just felt like it was just one more step in like the like, I'm a monster. No, you're not a monster. Like, and it was just kind of like, well, why, why did we finally trigger this super awesome moment from just that uh yeah <laughs> from just that that part i don't know does that does that make sense maybe maybe i like miss something but i think i i track what you're saying and i if if this is right i would agree with you they could have just done a much shorter segment of them in like the fantasy realm or something for them to reconnect because like I feel like she should just be waiting for him to get there because they made this promise that this is exactly what they would do. Well, I mean, people are complicated, though. Sure. We have a breakthrough and then in fiction, like everything's better now. You know, you're always having a breakthrough and it has to be, you know, reinforced and maintained or else you regress. And Zero Two, you know, she made her love connection. She resolved a lot of her shit, but presumably she's got PTSD or something and doubt and insecurity and that's what all that is her running away you know basically breaking her promise out of fear it's a fear-based decision she's a runaway bride 
but yeah <laughs> it's it's the fear that the book is her fate uh mm. and then if she stays with zero I mean, with a hero that she's going to kill him and right. that happens in real life people sabotage good relationships out of fear and insecurity but then once that distance is closed by hero physically showing mm -hmm. up there connecting to her knowing what it means to become an anglerfish boyfriend mm -hmm. <laughs> uh and get absorbed by her to do this thing yeah and i guess maybe part of it too is maybe like as i was watching this, this is my first watch through you know like i didn't know that that's what he was signing up for right so when she's like oh you know like you should just be a human like i didn't realize it was like oh we're gonna like permanently merge into this giant robot mech or yeah is that, neither is that what did happened? i yeah. yeah that is on my first watching i was confused uh if the transhuman metaphor of it was that they were going to make a baby or make something new or if it was going to be them transforming each other or eating each other and i do think there is a little bit of mixed metaphor there as to what shape the union takes because visually what shape the union takes changes slightly but i think in this episode it's it's settled that they are becoming like each other, becoming mm -hmm. the same kind of unique thing, which is this bridging the gap, half Klaxosar, half human mm -hmm. situation that mm -hmm. just also happens to be like, well, the male is inside you and the female is uh, the main body. Right. And that's just the shape Klaxosars take. Yeah. And it tracks with the Klaxosaurs we've seen, right? There is still right. that male pilot body inside of the, that's what the core is. I think ultimately that was the image that they, that they actually kept that ran the length of the whole series. But I do think they played with other images that could have been the transhuman narrative, but then just didn't, didn't use those because mm. I think maybe they had some thoughts during production that it would take a different form, but settled on something else during the storyboarding phase while animations were still being made. And, you know, production's messy. Things happen at different times. I don't, I can't say. I just know that I saw different potential metaphors being shown, but they, they ended up choosing the one and stuck to it. And mm. I think it was the right one uh, because like you just said, the other Klaxosaurs had the same visual metaphor of mm -hmm. a core and a larger body mm -hmm. and that's what that's the form they took all right so let me get back to your original question was the storytelling here uncomfortable for me yes and no uh it's uncomfortable for my western sensibilities hero's journey is very comfortable to me a certain earned pace is comfortable for me but my japanese side is also comfortable with the chaotic presentation here so mm. if I go back to like Megazone 23, it starts out as a very street level sort of mech anime. And in like the last 10 minutes or whatever, it like goes cosmic and it, you know, goes into the matrix or whatever. Same thing with Lupin the Third, just a funny thief comedy movie. And then in the last act, it goes like Space Odyssey 2001, Akira, same way. So many of the old school animes, which I grew up with. So experiencing it from that perspective, like, yeah, I get it. And I don't have a lot of justification. It's just speculative. Uh, so I think about 
uh, Japan as a culture um, post World War II. My opinion is that like being nuked twice wasn't the real trauma. Having the revelation that the emperor is not God is the biggest cultural trauma, and that was a quick overnight thing that was an existential crisis. And I think that that phenomenon has just stayed in the cultural voice, and it just keeps coming up in the arts. Well, so, uh, well, so that's Popeye's verm, you're saying, or well, an abrupt. Or what's the connection to this? A, a, a hard tonal shift that we that's very common in anime. Yeah, sorry, just a comment on that. I guess my initial thought is like, you know, like watching Akira, I was never like, oh, why are they suddenly in space? Like, <laughs> to me, like that made a lot of sense. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I also watched it when I was 13. So maybe I just like, rolled with shit better then. <laughs> but like... Well, you should have watched Darling in the Franks when you were 13. <laughs> that would have been the exact demographic. Then we wouldn't be talking about this. Yeah. yeah, but but you know it's it's like kind of like the previous two episodes. Like we already did like one hard tonal shift. We mm-hmm. like had mm-hmm. this like verm shit, mm-hmm. and then we're like, okay, mm-hmm. we're like going into space. And even like having set that up in the previous episode, I was still a little bit like, what what show am I watching? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, and I agree. I, like it's jarring, and it, I would have felt better if more groundwork had been laid. But uh, as I said, I do go back and forth on this, and. I've rewritten this show so many times in my head. Uh, but at this point, I'm more comfortable, like thanks to the insights that Theta shared about the golden bow and the death and rebirth cycle through that lens. It does make a lot more sense to me. I, I don't think I would want it any other way uh, when I think about that aspect of it, but I'll, I'll respond to a little bit of online criticism. Like I don't feel like this is like marriage procreation propaganda uh, when I look at this very odd and magical transformation, this seems to parallel, like this is what the Klaxosaurus did. Zero two, she received whatever spiritual energy uh, that the Klaxosaur princess had. I guess that changed her. And this is what their species did. They they went through a metamorphosis. Right. The, the, the episode ends with a sacrificial act. Yeah. Oh my God, this entire episode, this entire is a sacrificial is about sacrifice. Act. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of like the overall thematic structure being about death and rebirth, and we're ending on a tone of death, hmm. and then the next episode, the final episode, is sort of will be that next start of the cycle, perhaps. Uh, I'll say perhaps, even though I've seen it. Uh, but well, Ben um, still has not seen the last episode. Just <laughs> right. So I'm not going to share details about it. But like we've seen cycles of death and rebirth, and this episode has ended on a massive note of death, a chosen sacrifice to mm. overcome this conflict of the Verne that uh, that have just shown up, mm-hmm. and. Because of this show, I ended up learning a lot more about the very unique struggles that homosexual people and the LGBT community in Japan Mm. deal with Mm -hmm. and their unique stereotypes that they have to overcome, in particular one that's like a stereotype of how gayness is seen as just a phase, a stepping stone uh, of natural uh, puberty for people that they'll grow out of. Mm. The reason I bring this up is because even though I don't think that's what this show did, Mm -hmm. 
I think this show was focused on something entirely else. And my own video was very much just like, it's okay for me to, to be bisexual. That's mm -hmm. not a denial Absolutely. of LGBT representation. Absolutely. That's the B. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a struggle for people because when you don't have representation or good representation in the media you watch, when your representation is token, mm -hmm. and I can point back to Gynax and Bone shows and Trigger shows where the closest thing to to LGBT representation is the Okama stereotype that never goes beyond that. Even though Okama characters are some of my favorites because I often think they're like the wisest and most developed character in any show, mm -hmm. um, it's still not a great thing to encounter. And people see themselves where they need to see themselves, make character readings because no one's writing those characters for them. And I entirely get that. I just don't think that Mitsuru being bisexual and having a relation, a, a new relationship falls into that political uh, paradigm. I think it was very much still about death and rebirth. He had one relationship that ended, a new relationship that began, and it fed into another metaphorical uh, engagement with death and rebirth through marriage and, and child rearing. And it's okay for those two things to cohabitate in the same character and for that still to be a positive LGBT representation. Oh, sure. That uh, Just because we brought up that issue. And at the time, I was very passionate about it, but I was also ignorant to the kind of struggles that LGBT people in Japan face. Oh, yeah. And so I got to learn a lot more. I still came away with the same feelings about the show, but I definitely learned a lot more of people's struggles because of the drama online surrounding the show. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what's the what's the lesbian character's name? I'm blanking on it. Ikuno? Yeah, Ikuno. I mean, it is kind of interesting to have those two stories and kind of... <laughs> kind of the way they work out in this series. It's a little sad. I, I think it is a, a good step from representation in the past. Um, I also personally like that Kokoro and Hiro have a lot in common. And so like, yeah. I do agree that I think Mitsuru has a strong bisexual reading because he's attracted not necessarily to the body type of these potential partners, but to their personalities. Like there's something about both of them that resonates to him. Yeah. Speaking of other metaphorical uh, conflicts, oh I, I actually want to pick your guys' brain about Vern mm -hmm. as an antagonist. The character introduction was very interesting to me because it's presented as two faces, two voices, speaking with slightly different takes on the same idea of duty and uniformity and like a lack of individuation mm -hmm. and that was there a little bit in this episode and having watched the episode just now my takeaway is that Vern's not really a threat doesn't feel like a threat they seem to handle him pretty well they get through like there weren't any mechs that blew up and died Oh, because that was in the previous episode I just think they didn't have time to like kill off another nines mech all right, all right. So this is what I want to ask about you guys having seen the previous episode mm. too. What's the metaphorical 
conflicts that Verm presents to the characters if this is the episode in which they are transcending that. Because you did talk something about earlier on uh, in our discussion about doing the this thing not out of a sense of duty, but because they're choosing to. Mm-hmm. And I'm oh, yeah. wondering where what's the narrative significance of Verm being in the picture other than just being a tonal shift and escalation of the conflict. There it, there does seem to be a reading there for me, but I'm I'm not getting it and I don't know exactly what it is. We talked about this a little bit either last episode or two episodes ago, but there was yeah, this yeah. line from the Claxosaur Queen that, you know, she was talking about how by like being alone that somehow made her like safe and strong and so so that's this species where like she's mm. the one conscious person in the whole species and mm-hmm. she's kind of really individual and then on the other hand you have verm where everyone's consciousnesses are completely combined and they have no individuality and so i saw it as kind of like you know humans are stuck in the middle and you know, we're all trying to figure out how much of ourselves to kind of give over to our partners and to society mm. and how much of our individuality to to retain. And, and so in some ways, it's it's like these two foil forces. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're saying it's, I'm going to use philosophy words, sure, sure. a sort of a Hegelian dialectical synthesis where the Klaxosar and the Verm are being put on two very opposite spectrums, a fully collectivist and a fully individualist perspective. Would we say then that the characters lean more towards individualist ideals uh, just because they are human and Klaxosar and not human and Verm? Yeah, yeah, but I guess the humans kind of started off with Verm because Verm was like controlling them. Yeah. And so they're kind right. of breaking out of that maybe and going so more. So they are finding their virtue of the mean there through this act of fighting against the Verm and yeah. using and taking the Klaxosar with them to do so. The humans or the surviving pilots, like they represent, it's just not okay to err on one side or the other, like as a rule, like it's something that's worth navigating, even Uh, though that's difficult. And that's the synthesis point, right? Like, so the Klaxosaurs, their individual consciousnesses technically, but the queen is the only one with the will. And so that's kind of like authoritarian rule, Hmm. you know, again, yeah, we need someone to keep us safe. And so like, that's not uh, a healthy thing. And on the other end, you have this, uh, like, I don't know what the fuck they are. They're kind of, they sound, (laughs) their rhetoric sounds kind of like the Japanese emperor. Like, Mm. you know, everyone is kind of just a cell in the body of the will of Verm without having their own, necessitating their own will either. Collectivism. Uh, So it's like two different paths that led to exactly the same problem. Yeah, absolutely. And the solution is to navigate it to not give up your will but to act on behalf of the greater good like yeah. to make that your choice to to make those things be the same decision somehow to be willing to br- embrace the ambiguity and be willing to make a sacrifice for it i like that i have a very different perspective than everybody here <laughs> nice Please. Brian, yeah, let's go, go. Let's go. Right. so yeah. to answer your question again like t- to me verm is about collectivism the, the Klaxosaur princess, again, it either 
absolute individuality or authoritarianism of a you know a single will. Um, the ideal in my mind is communalism as opposed to collectivism. Uh, and like maybe this is a good uh, episode to be talking about because we're talking about belonging. People are finding community. Like Squad 13, they become a community. They don't lose their individuality and they're not so individual that they're not functioning together. Just from my perspective, this just speaks to the cultural crisis in Japan. Like it's interesting that you were mentioning like the two faces of Verm because I immediately started thinking of like the two forces in Japan that demand absolute conformity. It's like the family and the nation. You have to behave and act accordingly so not to bring shame on your family or the nation as a whole. And, you know, there's pros to that. The trains run on time. There's very little litter. You know, kids are safe walking through school zones. But the downside is um, emotional suffocation because uh, you can't be fully seen if you are repressing the things that make you an individual. Mm-hmm. I, I see it. I can see that too. And I also you know, have my own personal connections with a very similar sort of struggle, you know, what with being an African-American in America, mm-hmm. the whole dual consciousness idea, not necessarily where one has expectations placed upon them, say, to to the country, to, mm-hmm. to Papa. Uh, oh, yeah. And maybe not so much even to the, to the family, but it is a conflict between feeling an obligation to the race versus the individual, that mm. there is a necessity to not just be a good person, but to be a good representation of blackness because the society will take anything I do wrong as an excuse to put down every other person like mm-hmm. me. So my individuation, because of the authoritarian, the oppressive mm-hmm. outside influence mm-hmm. places upon me a responsibility to a community. Mm-hmm. My personal experience is a little one step removed from that just because it's more like a conflict between an individualism and communalism mm-hmm. where I'm more concerned about my community uh, as the 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 other conflicting force Mm -hmm. and and so that's perhaps why i missed that particular reading Mm -hmm. just because uh Mm -hmm. i don't see communalism as the meme i just see it as like a third other Mm -hmm. but i could definitely see that as being a more accurate reading of darling and the franks just because so much so many of the episodes have been about the children especially around this the second half about them becoming self-sufficient becoming an actual community not under the direction of any outside influences even if dr franks was kind of like pulling strings from afar being like will my experiment work will they become a community or not they will they'll become a community they'll they'll succeed He's the wild card. He's the serpent in the garden. <laughs> but like, how how much can you attribute scheming to him if his scheme is, I'm going to do nothing. 
<laughs> Leave people alone to be humans. Oh, they figured it out. Oh, who who knew? <laughs> but like, yeah, in terms of uh, the specific show and not just how I'm reacting to it, mm-hmm. you can't ignore that recovering community, uh, a natural sense of community from nothing is also a huge theme. And that becomes the thing that's on the line for this next uh, death and rebirth cycle, because rather than all of the various individual or authoritarian things, the thing at risk now is their community of them that they've all built together that's being protected by this final act of fighting against the big space purple people. Right. And presumably they could not go into space and just redouble their efforts on Earth. But I think the whole point is that, like, we can't keep passing the buck to the next generation. We may be the last generation that has any shot at stopping Verm. And like the Verm, like Verm offers this thing and the adults take it of this peaceful bliss, you know, and it even like in the big conflict, I think kind of telepathically offers all of the humans or Klaxosaurs again, like, why don't you just come over and be like this? You'll live forever. And like the whole, they make a decision to say like, it doesn't matter if I die, like that gives my life purpose. It's finiteness is what makes it mean something. That's a very Buddhist sentiment. The wabi-sabi mono no aware. Yeah. Transience of things that that's where value comes from. Ephemera. I have a question for Brian, which is so if, uh, you know, you're saying Verm is, you know, potentially the nation and the family. So if you were going to speculate like that on then the Klaxosaurs, what, what do you think the, the Klaxosaurs represent? I was afraid you were going to ask that. Uh, <laughs> my <laughs> shitty, shitty answer is like the West. You think so? I think they're the ancestral spirits. Mm. Oh, that's this is juicy. You guys are <laughs> like way you, you owe your ancestors like this respect. This uh you have a due burden. Yeah. So here's a fun fact that's totally unrelated, but connected in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh in uh, ancient Egyptian culture, in some poetry and literature, they would say the West when they meant the afterlife or death <laughs> but you know, go, go on though don't don't let me interrupt you ancestors or the, or the west but the west meaning the, the culture and not uh, death go i mean I, I i preempted it by saying it's kind of just a shitty cynical perspective but like if you're not in america it's very easy to look at america as this one monolithic thing uh and that's what the claxosaurs look like they look like this hive and the Klaxosaur princess controls it and runs it. And it's all about her individual will. So you can sort of see again, if you're looking at it through an outside lens, but I do want to hear more about your perspective because that sounds interesting. Again, not something I considered, but if we're talking about Japan's own history and heritage, and if we're talking about this, conflict between collectivism and individualism forming a value of communalism you know that would be a fair reading just because you know the united states came in with admiral perry broke the isolation period yeah. they brought 
Indi like they brought the value of individualism with them. Um, Meiji Restoration, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Japan sent out emissaries all over the world to read cultures, bring them back, and assimilate various cultural practices that they liked into their own system of culture and governance. And the Meiji Restoration was extremely successful, but at the same time, you know, lots of people in Japan were extremely concerned about where Japanese culture was going due to just a wholesale adoption of non-Japanese culture. Many are still very concerned. <laughs> yeah, it's not over. I have a own personal anecdote of like Japanese culture almost disappearing and then coming back just because I played in a taiko ensemble in college. Oh, wow. And taiko drumming is actually something of a, a cultural intersection between African Americans and Japanese Americans hmm. uh, because taiko playing, taiko ensemble in particular, developed out of the jazz scene of the American South in New Orleans by Japanese Americans who were learning and playing jazz and said, I want to play my instruments mm -hmm. while playing jazz. And so they made large <laughs> taiko barrels out of discarded wine barrels. Oh, God, that is uh, fascinating. Meanwhile, back in Japan, because it was a traditional uh, cultural religious practice, it wasn't hip, no, new, no kids, no young adults were really wanting to get into it or volunteer at temples and shrines to learn to play. It was a dying art form. It was almost gone. Then seeing um, Japanese American and African American jazz players playing taiko, that caused a resurgence in Japan, bringing back the traditional music, the religious purposes of playing drums. <laughs> That's amazing. So like, it's such a real conflict and there's every reason to think that that conflict is going to show itself in modern artistic works, in modern mm -hmm. animations, movies, anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before all our time gets away from us, I want to go over a few specific things in the episode mm. or uh, thematic things in the episode. So Kokoro and Zero Two, it's one of the plot lines, right? We have like five plot lines all going in this episode. Yes. And she is taking care of Zero Two in much the same way one might a newborn child or maybe not a newborn, but like a toddler. She has a nurturing role. Yeah, Very having motherly. to keep an eye on her body constantly because she is getting hurt, is unable to navigate the world by herself. Um, which I thought was really cool because we know that she is pregnant. That's going to be one of our climaxes coming up is like seeing how that goes. Uh, and I loved both of us remarks on this um, uh, Genestia shot, this giant mech towering over Kokoro and Zero Two as like, and Genestia, like, obviously, I don't know if we ever actually mentioned it, but it sounds a bit like gestation, right? Like, I think that's part of the wordplay there. Hmm. And so like this baby thing is the elephant in the room that they, her and Mitsuru have to come to terms with like what that means for the two of them. Um, so I don't know if this jumps too far ahead, but I really liked when Mitsuru and Kokoro confronted the issue, you know, like it's raining, Zero Two is out there, Kokoro's gonna stay, Mitsuru decides mm -hmm. to stay, Kokoro keeps mm -hmm. saying like, you don't have to, it's not your responsibility. And that's when Mitsuru cuts her off. You're like, that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. I guess in my mind, this just plays back into that idea of like communalism versus collectivism. 
because in a shame honor based culture it's all about responsibility mm -hmm. but mitsuru is choosing you know this commitment and maybe that's the key word it's a commitment not a responsibility mm. one that he's choosing versus what the culture is dictating to him and it mirrors one of the memories that was taken from them because when they slept together it was the same kind of thing where she was saying like, I don't want your pity. I don't want your like, I don't want you to feel like you have to comfort me or be here with me. She's in a state and he like reaffirms his commitment to it. And that's what he does here. She's in a state trying to take mm -hmm. care of zero two, unable to deal with this emotionality. And Mitsuru does the same thing, which is kind of cool that they get that back. To expand on how much this isn't the duty narrative mm -hmm. that is being fulfilled here, because I think a person who is uh, taking a more casual read of it might still see it as being the case because there's the pregnancy storyline going on Something that you often see in anime specifically, which is used very often, is when a story is affirming the idea of duty as the, the source of an ethical action, it often uses the line, don't run away, or I'm not going to run away. You know, nigeru. It is shameful to run away in the face of duty. And the whole time through that scene, I was waiting for that word. Like, I'm not going to run away. But it never came up. It was never about running away. Mm. It was all about the choice. Mm. Again, no external factors. It was just them making this decision for each other. And I think that was fully represented when they showed that each of them had kept the ring yeah. for whatever reason, even without their memories, they both individually chose to keep the ring and form their community together in their heart, even if it hadn't been spoken to each other mm -hmm. yet. And this mm -hmm. was just them being vulnerable and revealing to each other that they had already made that commitment, that it was still there despite what had happened. Mm. They didn't just keep it, they were carrying it with them at all times. Yes. I love yes. it. I feel like that issue comes up a lot in relationships too of like, you know, maybe there's something you want your partner to do, but you don't want them to do it because you tell them to do it. You like yeah. want them to want to do it. And then yes. when they do it, you're very relieved, but like it doesn't have the same value if you feel like they're doing it out of some sense of obligation or kind of to, to satisfy you, you know, that, that can also be a horrible thing in relationships when it doesn't work out when someone yeah. wants you to world, want people, something to use do your you don't words. want to do. <laughs> I, I think it is important, you know, like sometimes maybe you don't belong together, right? And if your interests mm. aren't actually aligned and you try to force someone to do something they really don't want to do, then then that and that builds resentment, you know, that can also uh, be a problem down the road. So, so it is a it's a tricky, tricky balance. Yeah, you have to navigate that. And part of navigation is constant course corrections. Maybe not constant, but frequent course corrections, right? Every second of every day, <laughs> you, you will renegotiate your entire relationship. <laughs> well, it, one could argue we do. Yeah, and, yeah, and, I, mean, and I guess my, my hyperbole voice aside. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think in this episode, even Mitsuru at first says like he's not leaving because like, you know, it's his duty to stay and like, you know, the pregnancy mm -hmm. and whatever. And then he has to clarify and be like, no, I like I actually want to be here. My fiance and I watch a lot 
of divorce court. She loves <laughs> divorce court. It's her comfort food. And there are so many couples on that show where they somehow thought, oh, if they just make an agreement with each other, a contract with each other, there's like, well, you're going to do this and I'm going to do this. And we're absolutely going to do it exactly perfectly all the time. Otherwise, I'm going to break your Xbox and throw away all your makeup. Like real dysfunctional relationship kind of thing. Mm. You often see that when people see their relationship as duty, as transactional, mm-hmm. that it's a symptom of how far it's already broken down, Mm. that their hearts weren't there, that they weren't doing it because of their own desire to be a part of it. And like, it's just very nice that this show makes it very explicit that that's not what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because I love this couple. I love Mitsuru and Kokoro together. They have an issue and they use their words and they talk it out and they come to an understanding. Uh, In some ways, um, they're more mature as lovers than... Hero and Zero Two, because Zero Two ran, and it took Hero, you know, going into outer space to like. I think get them back that together. wasn't. So, so I think we said a couple of times in this episode that like Zero Two ran away, and that's why her consciousness is in space. Yeah, but that wasn't clear to me. I guess like I thought maybe that was just like a symptom of using. Whatever the big mech was. Yeah. Mm. Apis. Uh, Zero Two's mentality is like, it's my duty, my responsibility to end this war once and for all. I've got to go do this. And incidentally, if I stay, according to the children's book, I'm going to kill Hero. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't say that to him. What we saw earlier is they had this really great heart to heart talk uh, about the picture book in the elevator shaft, you know, before all the shit went down. And then they rehashed it in this episode Mm -hmm. when they were talking to each other in the metaphorical space in Mm -hmm. the picture book. Mm -hmm. So in in running away, Zero Two could give Hero his life, but Hero didn't want his life. He wanted the choice. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least the very least, he wanted them to make the choice together. You want the choice to die together. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a show about a suicide pact. Thelma and Luis. Well, okay. No, so, we don't know how this thing ends. <laughs> so, Hero is obviously some sort of leader, right? And I never thought about this, but like he does have his name in common with the last like politically important sovereign of Japan, right? Emperor Hirohito. And like you just talked about him like the the cultural shock of like Japan figuring out like he's not a god. You just like hear him talk and he has a normal voice and he is just this like guy. So, one of the implicit things i think for an elected official or any sort of leader of a um a a society is that when it's time to make the sacrifice you're the one who has to make the sacrifice if the nation is the the cells of your body well then you're the one who has to die when the captain goes down with the shit yeah exactly and so i think it's really cool that they make that decision together obviously but he sits in this chair this throne as this like tiny tiny person and like Sterletia apis is like a goddamn nation and like he has to make the decision to like sacrifice himself to 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 be the change he wants to see in the world i think that's a really cool connection especially since uh i only saw it as hito's the hero that's, <laughs> that's the joke i mean other shows have not attempted to do more than that mm. when naming a person hero. 
Oh yeah, one of my favorite books, uh, Snow Crash. The main character is named Hiroaki Protagonist. <laughs> That's, uh, great. That just puts it all out there. Um, the other thing I really liked about this, um, because we're we're kind of in the same space in the story now. Mm-hmm. Nine Alpha has a transformation, I guess. Um, Nine Alpha gets to sort of see what community looks like. Mm-hmm. Sees lighthearted moments between squad 13 and then how they are in battle and uh you know they don't really explicitly say it but nine alpha delivers hero and then is gonna face down this fucking gigantic verm bot by themselves and mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of um the Klaxosaur princess just like believing in this next generation and being willing to sacrifice themselves mm-hmm. in the hopes that the next thing will be able to do better yeah. And nine or alpha thinks like I'm alone. They're not my money's on them. Yeah. And I don't know if it was a sex positive thing or just incidental. They commented that um, it felt like piloting with zero two, and it wasn't like a joke. Like when hero and nine alpha were piloting together. Mm-hmm. I thought that was because he was a clone. Maybe. Yeah. I didn't see how that could be sex positive. Please explain. Hero and Nine Alpha uh, piloting together. Mm-hmm. So it's like... It's a dude. Yeah. Because Alpha is coded male. Yeah, it wasn't a joke. They didn't... Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was It was just happening. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get I get that. I get that. Because it, it is an implicit narr- uh, metaphor in the world building. Mm-hmm. And then they just do it and it's not an issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we saw... I think it was episode four or five, whenever Ikuno tried to pilot with Ichigo and Ichigo said, I knew mm. two females couldn't pilot together. Well, no, she didn't. <laughs> she really didn't. Yeah, I still think she's wrong. I still think if Ikuno had been in the pistol position, but then the show wouldn't work the same way. Anyway, um, I thought that was a nice touch. I, I, re- I really liked, you know, the mental plane connection that Zero Two and Hero were having. They walked through the picture book it was really beautiful and then when they finally connect everything else dissolves the background dissolves their clothes dissolves it's just their naked souls together Mm. um i know that people online did cringe at that i just feel like that was kind of immature i thought it was no see i don't think i don't agree with that because like again going back to like cultural historical metaphors Nudity and purity have been uh, associated together mm-hmm. in a lot of Japanese historical fiction, mm. especially when like you're cleansing yourselves of kegare using a ritual bathing. Mm-hmm. Like, Does that mean nudity, corruption? Kegare is like a corruption. It's like stagnation. Um, I have trouble explaining it shortly because it's in one aspect like metaphorical but and uh, ethical but in another aspect it's like physical mm-hmm. it's like a substance mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. like a disease is kegare as much as an immoral action is kegare mm-hmm. so nudity being associated with purity mm-hmm. and finding like a real connection or a real value is so common and i think reading the presence of nudity as inherently sexual at all times Mm -hmm. 
is the most childish reading you could have of that scene. Mm, yeah. like, especially like dickless hero. <laughs> yeah. It is a beautiful scene. And I am offended at anyone who reads it otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that didn't feel fan servicey. I mean, we get our fan service moment with the, yeah, the, the robot. Yeah, the fan service moment happens right <laughs> <after> transformation. <laughs> but, you get to see the Sailor Moon transformation and the jiggle go boing for like you know, 10 gross. frames, and then you move on. I, I did think them being in the pitch, picture book was so fun, though, that like I could have just like had that stretched out a little bit longer. I don't know. I just really loved that animation, and mm-hmm. let's uh, let's talk about Bridebot. So <laughs> I, I know that there's a lot of strong reactions to this. Everyone knows the big Annie tubers <laughs> yelling about her turning into a boat. I make that joke myself all the time. Mm-hmm. I recognize a lot of what's happening on screen. It looks a lot like magical girl transformations. Uh, it looks a lot like other trigger works come to mind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the sentimental side of me just got nostalgic for my own wedding. And again, this is where it gets into their very different but strong opinions about all this stuff. But there are some camps that believe like the bride is going to be beautiful, but, you know, like tasteful and modest. And then there's other perspectives like my wife's perspective is that she wanted to be breathtaking. And she just wanted me to be filled with desire and mission accomplished. Hell yeah. (laughs) I think the question really is more, if we're going to not take a paradigm of a bride is supposed to be a certain Mm -hmm. way, then the question is, do we think the character design of when a a zero two becomes one with her Klaxosaur body, does that hit the feeling of who zero two was meant to be was that her image for herself i think in terms of a character arc and character build is that zero two's image of herself that she's finally achieved oh man (laughs) i'm going off of what you said yes yes well i'll start with my cynical answer first i think knowing the studios involved i could very easily see this being a fan service thing that's going to be able to sell a lot of artwork and models and shirts and posters. But mm. I do like the relationship between Zero Two and Hero. And I do think about Zero Two is sexually liberated. Mm-hmm. So I, when I think about what would be the most exciting thing in her mind, this fits. It doesn't feel like forced to me. Do you think she should be read? Oh, wow. God, these are a lot of hard questions coming out <laughs> in a short amount of time. Fuck. The, her her energy beams are red. Where I was saying like her her skin. I, like, oh, this, you this, mean like this isn't a story about like her accepting herself as you know mm-hmm. the the little red demon child that that she once was. I mean, we see her like that in those storybook sequences again. Her skin should totally be red. I totally agree with you. But she's not a kid anymore. Like she's a new person. That that was just how puberty changed her. <laughs> No, 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 no. Like, enlightened up. Yeah, that's no, not how it works. She went through a lot of changes and she is who she is now. And maybe she accepts who she is now. Like, she doesn't have any. I mean, I wish my skin was still red. Yeah. I, don't, I think that would have been a cool choice. Yeah. It would have been striking. just like because her skin know. went red when she accepted the Claxosaur part of her in like two episodes ago when she right. first interfaces with Sterletzi Apis. Mm. Mm. 
Okay, so my only piece of real trivia for this episode is that so she may not become her best Klaxus herself, but she does become her best anglerfish self. I've been waiting for this. So anglerfish, if nobody knows, they're these deep sea fish. They have bioluminescence to see, but also to attract deep sea fish and then eat them, right? And the reason it's called an anglerfish is angler is another word for a fisherman, like uh, someone who is fishing, right? They're, they're the ones that dangle the light on the big antenna mm-hmm. sticking in front yes, of them. Yes, exactly. The scary Nemo fish. Yeah. They also have these uh, uh, long feeler tendrils, um, and those can light up too. So when they're fully lit up, they actually look a lot like that super missile attack with like mm. light just darting out in all directions. Oh. But the anglerfish, the big scary light up ones, that's the female. The male is about 1 20th of that size. It looks like a little floating pair of undeveloped testicles. Um, And that's essentially (laughs) what it is. Um, Because when they mate for the first time, the male fuses into the female anglerfish and they become one organism capable of procreating on its own to the point where their blood vessels merge. So this is kind of cool, especially when thinking about like what's happening here between the two of them becoming this like actualized whole self, but they also can go through several uh, male mates in their lifetime. And like the original doesn't go anywhere. The the female just tacks on more mates into uh, her biology. Wow, I didn't know uh, that. Which is a lot like Zero Two mm-hmm. eating up her stamens, right? The blood vessels fusing together is a whole heck of a lot like the cables fusing mm-hmm. into Hiro's body. Oh my gosh. he takes the pilot seat. <laughs> yeah, and her own horns fusing into the cockpit of Strelatia Apis, which looks very much like a heart or a womb on the inside. Mm-hmm. How intentional was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the, the biological term is sexual parasitism. <gasps> like the parasites! Get out. All right. Here, here's my other my other rewrite for the end of this okay. episode. This is Ben's director's cut. So she, also involving anglerfish. Yeah, well, <laughs> so she's red, and then uh, so we get that big reveal, and then the, these like asteroids come out of nowhere, and they shoot lasers at each other. And I mean, like, okay, that is like suspense. You are like, what's happening? But <laughs> and I guess there there is a little like it does feel like something out of like a myth. Like it feels like one of those like old stories where things just happen because they just fucking happen. Mm-hmm. But like, couldn't they have just been like, oh, like there's just like the portal there once they kill all the bad guys. And they're like, what's that? And it's like, oh, it's the portal that they came through when they were like invading Earth. And mm-hmm. then like the reveal is, oh, let's like go through this portal and do whatever. But instead it's like, oh yeah, no, the Klaxosaurus built these asteroids Asteroids years ago for this very moment so we could go destroy the the verm colony or something i'm with you it totally should have been a verm gateway because then the verm could the fleet could have been escaping back to it and strelatia apis uh catches up blows them all up and it's like all right now i'm going to use your own gate well they may have been too focused on angler fish to work out those details <laughs> 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 What do we know about anglerfish's access to portals? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, and one more piece of little trivia. Uh, um, Brian, I'm going to be blown out the water <laughs> if you tell me there is actual portals with anglerfish. Be very careful of your next words, sir. <laughs> no, I wish. Brian, you kept mentioning like a couple of shots in these these last few episodes. Very reminiscent of Macross, the space battles, like precedents that were set there. Oh, yeah, with the, the big SDF main cannon firing. Um, and then uh, a lot of Macross crew and Gundam crew also worked on Edeon. And Edeon, th- this like giant cosmic mech is very influenced by that mm-hmm. show. Um, in fact, like the uh, aesthetically, the omnidirectional missile attack is very similar to uh, what Ideon does, uh, uh, and it's animated in a similar fashion too. You also see that omnidirectional missile laser attack in uh, Ereka 7. Yeah? It is one of the signature uh, attacks of uh, the Nirvash's parallel robot, The End. That is an ominous, now I want to watch this show. <laughs> I just had this like funny little thought. Uh, while we were watching the episode and it just came up again, I kept noticing there were sound effects that I recognized from Gundam. Mm, uh, that's awesome. You know, and when I was a kid, I I realized that like Hanna-Barbera or Warner Brothers, they had this one sound bank of sound effects that kept getting used for everything. And I thought, surely the anime industry isn't like that. But there's so <laughs> many sounds that are the same. Well, it's it's expensive to have original Foley work. Yeah, I, I bet they yeah they use the same online websites where they just search like laser and then like <laughs> the same thirty sounds pop up and they're like oh, oh. yeah this one sounds I, that's what we do with podcasts anyway. <laughs> I love it. Well, time for uh, th- fan theory tinfoil caps to get put on. Okay. Since I've been doing this tracking of how much this show is representative of trigger. T- Taking from Bones and Gynax, <laughs> if there is shared sound effects mm. going on, perhaps one could track the use of these sound effects to find signature styles of unnamed or uncredited people who are jumping between the shows and just see where the levels are overlapping. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it really isn't intentional drawing from the other shows, but simply the artists on the team recreating things they've done well in the past because that's just their aesthetic. Mm. Yeah, I tried to do a, a name for name uh, comparison, like all the people who worked on Darling and the Franks. There were so many, I would say over half either worked on uh, Evangelion or in some capacity with at least one of the rebuild movies. Mm, That's a lot. Yeah, I stopped at like 73 names. I just gave up. I've also started paying a lot more attention to sound effects and where they're coming from and being reused in like the last three years. So I don't have a lot of experience listening to or remembering sounds from anime. I spend most of my time consuming video games now, and video games are, depending on which part of the industry you're looking at, a much different beast. And most games that are in the AAA to you know middle-sized space do all of their own sound effects and fully work fresh for every project. Mm-hmm. It's and silly. Even like a simple sound of a gun firing is almost never the same in two games. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Uh, even if it's the same people making it with the exact same gun, those sorts of 
finding where a good sound is being recycled in a good way is so far and few between mm. that it, it becomes a real like, i'm not even joking this is a an exciting it's an exciting scavenger hunt to <laughs> listen for like the artistic uh styles signatures of just individuals who you may never see the name of otherwise but you'll notice their presence just from what they contribute to all of the works they uh, are connected to. Um, so I wanted to ask before I forget about it, uh, Ben, do you have any predictions? Uh, also last thoughts or whatever. Do you have any predictions for the, the finale? Well, so we saw Zero Two kind of petrifying, turning to stone or something. So I think, uh, you know, the squad is going to come back and uh, see her and uh i don't know fun funeral episode i i Ooh. don't i don't think hero and zero two are coming back i don't know if they're gonna die die but i think they will be at least trapped off in on the other side of this portal maybe they will start a new world on their own while the rest of the the squad is kind of starting Ooh. their their new life uh oh, Do that okay. Ender's game vibe you talked about yeah so so we get the zero two funeral and then we need the the rebirth so we're gonna have cook rose baby okay um futoshi is gonna really love this baby nice um a little too much. No, oh, no come no, on. No, 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 I mean, like. Uh, uh, uh. You either meant cannibalism or not cannibalism. And by God, I hope you meant cannibalism. No, I meant like the milkman's real nice to your son. I wonder why that is. Because you're the uh, milkman's son. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you, you, you meant adultery. That's bad. Yeah, okay. sorry. Between Kokoro and Fudoshi. Yeah, adultery is fine. I'm on board. <laughs> I'm thinking like Kokoro and Mitsuru finally sleep together and she's like, oh, that wasn't great. Um, <laughs> like, I like you and all, but like maybe Futoshi is part of this relationship. <laughs> hey, I would love to see a sequel where they're pan. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't, don't write my fan fiction for me. I, I request that this be our cold open. Oh, you <laughs> oh, meant no! adultery. <laughs> adultery is fine. <laughs> Anyways, Brian, any last thoughts for the episode? I enjoyed it uh, so much more uh, going through it in this context. I think in the past I'd watched this one and be like, hmm, yeah, okay. Maybe it's the angler fish. I don't know. But uh, I'm sold on this episode. And and Alex, my mirror image, my my confidant. <laughs> what, what any uh, any last thoughts? On the episode, not our experience yeah, together yeah, yeah. in this night. <laughs> We're, this uh, isn't over. <laughs> my lasting impression of Darling in the Franks uh, before this opportunity to come and uh, revisit it had mixed feelings that spread to the negative over time, just being like, eh, it wasn't that great. But having been listening to your podcast and now revisiting it here, you know, no, it's good. It's a good show. <laughs> I like this show. It's yeah, it's got the it's got some weird fan service stuff mm -hmm. that I probably wouldn't show my fiance because I know what her tastes are. Mm -hmm. But like, it's not a bad show. Mm -hmm. And it goes places it does things it's narratively significant. And I'm very glad to 
be able to vindicate how I felt about it at the time rather than how I'd grown to feel about it later. This was a great opportunity and this episode in particular, seeing the culmination rather than you know all the muck in between, all the struggles in between was very helpful for me personally mm -hmm. to trust myself and like the thing I like. All right, that's awesome, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry, I wanna make an anglerfish the episode art. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just put a just put an anglerfish dangle on the penguin. <laughs> just put it on the penguin. A penguin, penguin with its front tail. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, come so, full circle. Sorry, so Ben. Is Trigger and A One. Yeah, those are the two co-studios. Is Trigger the the giant beast that A One is trying to become a a parasite mm. on? And slide their slice of life stories into these uh, <laughs> oh wow epic mech shows. trigger yeah trigger is the giant breast mech and a1 <laughs> is the uh, oh, slice of empathy life as a superpower <laughs> protagonist that's that's Meta. as above so below yeah. that's the macro statement of the series well well done ben uh, my body rejects this. <laughs> okay, well, this has oh, been uh, pretty wonderful. Thank you for making this time, Alex. But before I forget anything, um, if people wanted to hear more of you, which how could they not? What, where would you send them to? If you want to see more of me, I would absolutely send you to just search the name Socratetris mm -hmm. on YouTube. It's Socra from Socrates, Tetris from Tetris. Mm -hmm. And it's not too hard to find. I did a very massive experimental Warframe video. The entire channel is mainly about exploring the philosophical influences in video games and the p philosophical potential of games as an art form. I did anime before. Mm -hmm. I haven't done anime in a long time, but if you want to go back and watch my anime episodes, they're still there. They didn't go away. Uh, I would also like to remind everyone within the sound of my voice to also comment on a video with the secret catchphrase, Pen Pineapple Pen Pen Pals, as well as to rate the Pen Pen Pals on your podcatcher of choice, five stars, give it a heart or whatever <laughs> it is, because one, I love them, two, you love them. It would really help them out. Aww. We're bad at self-promotion, so we appreciate our guests with the DIY. Like, promotion. share, and subscribe. <laughs> Tell your friends. Post it on r slash anime and r slash anime circle jerk. You're amazing. Okay. Um, if someone enjoyed Darling in the Franks or particularly this episode, or is there something that you just wish everyone would see? Like, do you have another pitch for Eureka 7 or, or is there anything else you'd recommend? I've talked enough about uh, my favorite anime ever, Eureka 7, and I do want to remind people that if particularly Darling in the Franks, everything about it is your jam, like not even with exceptions, you will love <laughs> Star Driver. Uh, but it's just so that we're staying in the same realm of families of studios and animation, uh, if you haven't watched Hero Man... You should watch Hero Man. It is an anime about in an American high school, which is extremely unique for an anime to be placed in an American high school. And it's a young blonde boy who's got 
crushes and feelings, but he meets a giant Baymax looking super robot that goes on adventures with him, becomes his best friend, and then they destroy the evil bug invaders from space. I love that. It's kind of like Darling in the Franks. I, I just looked up Hero Ben, just to interrupt really quick. It's written by uh, Stan Lee, or at least the manga What? what? So maybe that's why it said in American <laughs> High School. Happening? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Stan Lee's the anime. Spider-Man. <laughs> that's insane. All right, Pen. Pen. Wonderful. わよ銀河美少年あなたの力を